Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Hey friends, for the rest of the year, we're bringing back old episodes of Boss Barista. Part of the reason we're doing this is because the community of listeners who are part of Boss Barista is so different than it was a few years ago. But also, many of these episodes carry lessons and ideas that I still carry with me and I think are worth revisiting. Today, we're re releasing our episode with Nate. Today, we're re releasing our episode with Rachel Northrup. Rachel is a freelance writer, a PhD student at the University of Miami, the former content manager for Ally Coffee, and author of the book When Coffee Speaks. Stories from and of Latin American coffee people, which collects interviews with coffee farmers from South and Central America. At the time that she wrote When Coffee Speaks, Rachel was living in New York, and when the farmers she spoke to heard that, they asked her about coffee prices. Coffee is traded on the New York Stock Exchange, and they assumed that she'd be familiar with that system. She wasn't, but she made it her personal project to learn more. And what she uncovered was dense and rich and informative, so we broke up this episode into two parts, which originally aired in October 2020. Part one, which you're about to hear, is a breakdown of how coffee markets work. And part two looks at these markets with a critical eye, asking why this system continues to govern the sale of coffee, and who that hurts and leaves out in the process. Here's Rachel. Uh, So before we get started with this conversation, I think (laughs) it's going to be important to note that there are going to be a lot of really big ideas about how coffee futures and contracts and just like the economic systems around coffee are going to work. So let's start not in a complicated place. So Rachel, I'm going to have you just talk a little bit about when you became interested in coffee. Yeah, so thanks so much for having me on Boss Barista. And so for me, being curious about coffee started when I was working as a high school teacher in New York City. And every morning I would get my coffee, a small cup of black coffee for a dollar from one of those street carts on the corner. And while I was teaching, I was also blogging a little bit about just sustainable food and some farmers markets and some of these like um, locavore restaurants and, and different eating styles that were coming up in New York about eating food that was grown locally. And so I started to get curious about, I was like, huh, I get this coffee every day and I'm seeing coffees that are roasted locally coming up at farmer's markets and other places. But um, I sort of became curious about, you know, where where does my regular coffee come from? Where does my dollar a cup of coffee, my dollar street corner cup of coffee come from? So I ended up actually leaving my teaching position and taking about a year in Central and South America, in Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Panama, and Colombia, and just trying to figure out a little bit about where coffee comes from and putting that together into a book of interviews that became When Coffee Speaks. Um, That's the title of that book. And then while I was doing that, I also started freelance writing for two coffee publications, 
Tea and Coffee Trade Journal magazine in 2012, and then Fresh Cup magazine in 2014. And so my coffee, again, interest came from just being a very average coffee drinker. But then as soon as I got to uh, Central America, Costa Rica was the first country where I started, I realized there were so many things that entered into coffee production that I really sort of needed to go do my homework about. Um, so there were people talking about hybrid varieties of plants and all these different agronomic systems. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm an English teacher and a writer. <laughs> I don't have my science chops like this. Um, and then another, and then during the, the process of interviewing people who were on the producing side or working at cooperatives, um, I would ask them questions and I would always give everyone an opportunity to ask me questions just as part of the, the process of getting to know people and building trust and, and fairness. And when they heard I was from New York, one of the questions that was most commonly asked from Costa Rica through Panama into Colombia was people said, oh, you're from New York City. That's where the price of coffee comes from. What do you know about that? And so they would ask me that and I would be like, I don't, I don't know where the price comes from. I'm, that's not the part <laughs> of New York City I live or work in. And so, um, but that, that question kept coming up and especially interesting was that association between New York City as this faraway place and it as the maker of a price. Um, and so that was a question that I didn't have an answer for when people were asking it to me sort of in the field that first year that I was in coffee. But it stuck with me. And as I put When Coffee Speaks Together, I sort of tried to explore it a little bit more. And I paid attention to the differences in, in systems for pricing between the different countries that I was in and tried to ask more questions about it. And then as I continued to do different freelance stories, I kept that question in mind and sort of kept researching that in the background and sort of trying to piece together how I could answer that question, which turned into, you know, about eight years later, still. <laughs> there I was about to say, we haven't answered yeah. that question yet, have we? Right. I think, and I think that's part of the reason, I think that's what makes it a great question is that it doesn't, great question, but also a difficult one is that it doesn't have an easy answer. So I think that that's actually a good framework to think of this conversation, that question of like, where does the price of coffee come from? And by no means are we going to number one, answer that question because you've been working on it for eight years. Um, and two, um, a lot of the things that you are probably sharing come from your background as a freelance journalist, as a researcher, as someone who doesn't trade coffee but has studied it for the writing work that you do. Um, but before we get into that, um, I'm I'm always really compelled by like the little details of people's lives. It's kind of incredible that you had a question and you were like, I'm going to go find it out. Like, I'm, I have this cup of coffee in my hand and I'm going to go find out like where this comes from. Have you always been like that kind of like question asker, like a person who pursues questions um, as far as they go? Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm like curious, but stubbornly so probably far more than is good for me. So um, that was actually how I learned to speak Spanish by living in Spain. Um, I was an, um, an exchange student for junior year of high school. And so that was sort of the same thing where I just like decided, I was like, huh, I wonder you know, what it's like. I lived in, I grew up in New Hampshire in a small town in, um, in sort of central mountains of New Hampshire. And so I just was sort of like, huh, that seems interesting and different over there. I wonder what it's like. And then I just, you know, went and found out and then um, sort of did the same thing 
uh, with coffee, which actually was, you know, part of the reason why I was, I was looking to, I love New York City and have a deep love and always will have for New York, but because I grew up sort of in the mountains, outdoors, um, at some point it becomes, New York becomes a lot of city <laughs> very quickly. So um, that was why I was interested in, you know, getting back to or getting to know a different part of the world and its mountains and its, you know, culture with that. So, um, and then using the Spanish that I had learned from from living abroad. And so sort of a lot of things, it just came together that that ended up being something. I had the Spanish from Spain, which is very much not tropical. I was about or, to say. Or it has agriculture, but certainly not coffee. And then I had the mountain experience from New Hampshire and they sort of converged <laughs> in Central America. <laughs> um, and so... And so, yeah, so I was able to do the, that initial research. And then I actually did return to teaching in New York for a few years after that, um, but continued the coffee freelance writing. And then that was in, in 2015 was actually when I also started working for Ally Coffee as the content manager. Um, and so working for an importing company, even though I'm not the one who does any of the coffee buying, um, you just get I, that added another perspective in just seeing how the supply chain operates, like just the flow, sort of knowing the about like the timelines and some of the processes for physically purchasing coffee volumes from around the world. So um, again, that was just another piece in getting to hear from different producers in different countries. And um, yeah, sort of all these different pieces over time have contributed to me coming up with <laughs> different ways to approach an answer to this question about where does this magic number, where does this price come from? Cool. So let's 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 dive in then. Let's try to figure out some at least some of the contributing factors to this number. So uh, let's start, I guess, pretty broadly. And again, uh, we talked a little bit about this uh, a little bit earlier, and we said this uh, a little bit before we started recording. But a lot of this perspective that you're about to offer comes from your work as a freelance writer. Um, and it's a question that you've been exploring for a long time. So like where, where would we even start with a question like this? Where does the price of coffee come from? Yeah. So it was interesting. And that was, and again, the, the thing that struck me and why I tried to sort of decided to approach it from that original question that was asked of me was that there was an, a very strong association among the producers in Central and South America between New York City and the price of coffee. And that struck me as odd because there are no coffee farms <laughs> in New York City. And so I was I was sort of curious, like, huh, why? Like, I'm coming to where the coffee is. Why do they think the coffee price comes from where I come from? And so that, you know, what we've been alluding to here is the, the coffee futures market or what's called the C market, which actually currently um there are offices so the coffee futures market originally was traded like a physical trading floor uh in new york city and now all of that trading happens digitally so it sort of happens everywhere there are no floor brokers and no more pit trading for coffee um, at this time but that was it was the new york coffee exchange um that that was in New York City. And that was where these futures contracts were traded. And from that process, a price is derived. And then ultimately that number that is that comes out of the daily trading in New York City or currently <laughs> online on online platforms, that this yields 
a price that then translates to what producers see when they sell their coffee in Central America. And so that, so sort of understanding that that was why they were asking me that, that all producers know that in New York City, a price of coffee is discovered or, the, or a price sort of right. comes almost magically. And that's what, and that's, what's been interesting is that the, that's part of the, <laughs> the actual truth of this is that it sort of is magic about how a price is generated by a futures exchange. It's, it's almost as mystical as, as people think it is. <laughs> and then right. it's, it's mystical, but at the same time, it's also very much math and technical and <laughs> dry. Well, I bet you some of the, I guess, like mysticalness that kind of surrounds that is that it, it seems from, again, this might be me asking you to explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old, um, but it seems like a lot of these conversations are happening totally independent of where the actual coffee is coming from. So like it involves no person who's physically has the coffee to be like, this is the price of the coffee here. I am selling it to you. It's like, I have this coffee and somewhere way far away. Someone is using magical algorithms to figure out how much this thing that I currently have that I'm in charge of is worth. Right. And so that, so it's like an interesting angle to approach the question because from that perspective, it does seem very like nonsensical or very much divorced this number divorced from this thing that I've grown on my land for, you know, over the course of the years and have been cultivating possibly for generations. And so just to back up the, what I learned, and this is, you know, information that's out there and I encourage everyone to look this up and to research it. Um, So what I'll explain a little bit about now is just what a futures market is in general, and then I'll sort of tie it back to coffee. Yes, I would love that. (laughs) Yeah, so we say, so that's where I always try to be, I do think language is powerful and that we should try to be as as accurate as possible in whatever we're talking about. So we, and even I've been saying so far, quote unquote, the, the price of coffee. But what happens is that the New York sea market price, that is a futures exchange, which means that that is a marketplace where contracts are traded. So that is actually something, that's a separate activity. What happens in New York City, so to speak, but it currently happens on, it's called the Inter- Intercontinental Exchange, is the the owner of that marketplace, of that exchange. And they, and that's a, dig- again, that's a digital platform and you have to be a licensed broker and there's a whole process to participate in trading on that exchange. But the thing that's traded on the New York coffee, they're, they're called ICE Futures, it's New York Sea contract. And its ticker symbol is KC, and you can see all of that. And again, I encourage everyone to go to the the ICE is literally the website, the ICE Intercontinental Exchange, to just look up the specifications of that contract and just to get a sense of where of all the different products that are traded with features, which include other agricultural things, metals, currencies. It sort of starts to get really abstract, but basically, what a futures exchange is is there are contracts that correspond to physical units of coffee. So you can trade those contracts, meaning buy and sell those contracts and never see a green coffee bean in your life. And that is a very common way to participate in a futures exchange. So the futures exchanges in the US go all the way back to the 1800s. The first one was in Chicago and the first one in the US and actually like way back, they go to rice exchanges in Japan in like the 1600s. And these are places where 
people will come and buy and sell these contracts as a way of anticipating what will or will not happen or might or might not happen with the actual supply and demand of a product. So you have a contract and if you purchase that contract, that entitles you to the delivery of the physical good that matches the specifications on that contract. And then vice versa. If you sell that contract, then you must deliver goods that match the specifications on that contract. But we're, can I ask where the contracts come from? What was that? Can I ask where the contracts come from? So that's something that the exchange itself has set up, basically the terms of the contract. And so you actually don't physically receive a, like a piece of paper that you can hold. It's your broker who would manage, they call your position, right. meaning how many contracts you have. And again, there's a whole system, and this is similar to if you know anything about stock trading, in some ways it's similar. Um, but futures contracts have expiration dates. And so, and they, they have certain months of the year when they expire and certain days, it's sort of this whole, there's a whole trading calendar. Again, it's all on the ICE website. I encourage you to go just take a peek. Um, but these contracts, if, if they expire, you either owe the physical good or you must receive the physical good as, as specified on that contract. But most people, that's, that's like the last way that they call that the buyer and seller of last resort that's fairly uncommon what most people will do is that they will either buy back a contract that they've sold or sell a contract that they've bought meaning they'll they call it closing a position or like undoing the position that you took in the market and so there's a way to do that as a hedge meaning as a protection for whatever you're physically buying and selling in real containers of coffee and you, but you can also buy and sell these contracts purely with the hope that the value of them will change in your favor, which is speculation. And so these are, again, this is something that exists. There are futures contracts for cotton, for soy, for cocoa, for sugar, for um, corn, wheat, all sorts of stuff. And there, again, different participants in the futures market have different goals. Some people trade contracts in order to what they call lock in or protect a price, meaning that you want to use a future contract to know what you will pay for a product in the future. And that's sort of, we won't get into, again, <laughs> I am not a trader. I'm not providing anyone any instructions or advice for how to hedge or how to speculate, none of that. <laughs> um, but there's, there is a way, just trust me on it, that, <laughs> that you can use the, the, the trading of futures contracts to what they call again protect a price sometimes that's described as a risk management tool um but then there's other people who buy and sell contracts for speculative purposes meaning that they hope the market will they hope that the buy the the sale of those contracts or the purchase of those contracts will work in their favor and earn them a profit just on those transactions with no for them it doesn't matter whether or not it correlates to a physical unit of coffee and so that's sort of the the way that an exchange, or that's a very, very brief overview of how an exchange operates. And they call that whole process price discovery, which is, again, that's the part that it does feel and get, feel a little bit mystical in this way that there are just people, whoever they are. And that's actually something else the exchange guarantees is anonymity so that you actually, when you buy and sell a contract, you don't know who the other party is. The exchange oh, okay. acts as like a clearinghouse in the middle. 
And Interesting. yeah, and part of the way that works is that that way it's like a guarantee, like the because you're trading through a clearinghouse, you know that you'll receive or you know that you'll owe <laughs> whatever the, the amount is. Um, and there's there's a whole, you know, again, there's very, very clear procedures for all of this in how these transactions actually take place. Um, and there's something called the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, CFTC, that oversees all of this uh, and regulates it and, and sort of audits and, and checks to make sure that everything's happening the way it should. And the exchange itself, like the, the house doesn't play, so to speak. <laughs> so the, the, the owners of the marketplace do not buy and sell in the market. They just operate, the oversee the orderly operations of the exchange, I think is how they phrase it. So, um, so again, you have people, and at this point, it's even more abstract again, because everything happens online and there are no longer floor brokers gathering in the same room together in front of a ticker in New York City. <laughs> now all the brokers and traders just work from wherever they are in the world. Um, and so that's the, that's the process of price discovery is that the price that's generated every day is just the results of every trade that was placed. So the price moves up and down as people buy and sell contracts at either higher or lower prices. And again, those are futures contracts. So that does not mean that everyone who's buying and selling in the futures market has any intention or any interest in ever buying or selling green coffee. It's, in that sense, the two are totally separate, meaning that you can buy and sell futures contracts and never, like I said, never see a green coffee bean. Um, and so, and again, in that way, they're separate. But then the part where getting back to the, the question of coffee that, that people want to know is that why is that price that those people are, quote unquote, discovering <laughs> somewhere? Yeah, how is that related to like what actually happens at origin. Right. How does that mean that when I go to the co-op on Wednesday, that that's going to be the number that I'm paid for my coffee or when I go to the intermediary and, you know, to deliver my green coffee. And so that's where, again, what I'm about to explain is from sort of just a, like a theoretical overview, the conceptual process of how this works. Basically, I mean, this is one of the things I've certainly learned too, is that part of the reason it's really hard to talk about this stuff in general terms is because I would say it's probably safe to say that every single coffee transaction is unique. <laughs> like if you go through the whole chain of like how a container of coffee got from origin to a roastery, like there's probably something unique about every single one of those transactions, meaning like the order in which people confirmed how much they wanted, how much they wanted to pay for it, what the quality was, which port it's going to, like all those things, they all have to happen and they all have to happen sort of more or less in the same order, but it's by no means like a scientific process. Sort of. Is that because, is that because mm -hmm. of like, why is that? Is that because of like different customs in different countries or you mentioned even just like the ports that they can enter? Like why is, why is that not uniform? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's part of the beauty of the physical trade. And that's what people, uh, I think, will recognize in sort of the basket of things that can be called direct trade is that, sure, some, that makes sometimes sense. a transaction is initiated by a producer offering someone coffees. Sometimes a transaction is initiated by a roaster seeking out coffees. Sometimes it's 
initiated by a connective business like an exporter or an importer, either offering coffee or sourcing coffee for someone or looking to fill their spot position. So sort of based on all those many ways that a transaction can be generated, sort of everything else happens in slightly different orders, just depending on when those pieces all fall into place. Okay. Um, so the way that that then translates to to these pricing mechanisms is that one one benefit of this mystical, <laughs> it's not mystical, but one benefit of this price discovery process um, is that the number that is generated every day that everyone sees as the, the C market price, that number is one number and it's visible to everybody. And this visibility has actually increased with the internet and meaning that maybe at different points in time, this number was not visible to certain people in the supply chain. Um, but certainly with the internet and certainly with better connectivity and improved dissemination of information in different ways, that this number is not something that the exchange hides. It's not something that they delay. You don't have to pay to see it. It's something that is publicly visible. It's reported by all these different, you know, all the different um, news outlets that report on markets and, and things. And it's Basically, it's public, open, free information, and everyone can see it. And so the benefit of having like a single price that's publicly shared is that then you can use that as a benchmark, and everyone is seeing the same benchmark. At the same time. And so that's, that's sort of where um, I think it's interesting, at least for me, in this process of, of trying to understand the futures market. A lot of it was, you know, there's a lot of, especially at this time with you know, what's being called the price crisis and, you know, watching prices fluctuate, knowing that they're below the cost of production for probably the majority, if not the vast majority of coffee producers in the world, that the sea market has gotten a lot of black and sort of for being, um, for, for generating a number that doesn't cover the cost of production for, for people. Um, but I think one of the things that I've tried to understand through the different years and angles of looking at this is trying to understand it what what the tool itself what a futures market what that tool is designed to do uh and then then you from there you can sort of look at okay is the tool being used correctly is it being used as it was designed or is it maybe being misused which then leads to other questions of if the tool itself is being used correctly then maybe there's a flaw in its design, or maybe that tool is not the tool that we need for this job. And so looking at some of those questions, um, you know, you can be critical of this tool and its role in the coffee trade, or again, a futures markets role in the cocoa trade or in cotton and corn and soy and all sorts of other things. Um, but it's also interesting to look at what about it works and it, and to, to question if maybe there's also elements of this tool that are successful and that are positive. Right. And I do think one of those things is the fact that when you get one number that is visible to everybody, then everyone can use that as a benchmark. And there's not a question of, oh, you just made up this number because it serves you. There's sort right. of, there, so even though it's this sort of like nameless, faceless, quote unquote, price discovery <laughs> process, kind of because the fact that it's nameless and faceless almost makes it fair in one sense, meaning that it's discovered by everyone's collective activity together. Um, and then, and because it's 
the result of the market rather than the result of some individual naming a number, then everyone can use it to what they call fix contracts or to finalize contracts. And there's a couple different ways, again, that you can do that if you're there, that might be useful to you because you're also hedging so that if you have a price where you fix a contract for physical coffee, you, you would, you might use that same price when you're doing, you know, your hedging activity also. Um, but there's a huge qualification to that, which is how do you then say something is fair <laughs> if you know it's not performing this other very important function of compensating people. So right. um, I think, again, just one of the, the things to keep in mind about, and what I've noticed about the, the stated goals of a futures exchange, which are to provide price discovery and to offer opportunities for hedging and price risk management, and then to be a buyer and seller of last resort, that those are all goals that are designed to facilitate the trade of products. And so, unfortunately, in that design, there's not any stated goal that says, you know, we will make sure this number is either fair to the people who are producing the raw material or on the flip side, that it's fair to the consumer and that we won't let it get above a certain point because then no one can afford something. So that's where there's other mechanisms, either for international agreements or regulations from different bodies, whether it's exporting countries, importing countries. Um, there's sort of a bunch of other things that have come into play at different points in history. And you can look at something like oil, which is also a commodity, but has essentially a, has the OPEC essentially a cartel to inform its prices in ways that <clears throat> coffee doesn't. So, um, so yeah, so that you have a futures exchange, which one of its benefits is that it generates something that everybody can see at the same time to collectively use as their right. benchmark. But then one of its huge drawbacks is what if that number is very unuseful <laughs> to you? Right. Or harmful. low or so, yeah. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason why we've seen in the coffee industry a whole bunch of different ways to trade coffee that don't, to buy and sell coffee that don't rely on the price discovered by the C market. And right. so I think that's something else important to note is that that price, again, exists, but there's no obligation to make that pay the that. price that you pay. So Right, right. And we talked about that a little bit before with like direct trade or even just like some sort of interaction between producers and roasters, like roasters can pay whatever they want or importers can pay whatever they want. Just because the mm -hmm. sea market is a certain price doesn't mean that they're obligated to pay that price. Um, I think I'm going to try to summarize what you just said. <laughs> I think I'm going to try it. I'm going to see what happens um, just to make sure that I understand it. Um, so it seems like number one, it's important to look at what the point of a futures exchange is. And I might ask some more cl clarifying questions on this, but it seems like the point of a futures exchange or a futures market is to make sure that there's at least any sort of benchmark, that there is at least some benchmark to talk about the price of coffee, as opposed to like, there is no benchmark. So you could pay $100 or you can pay like two cents. Like it kind of at least somewhat limits the range that we're talking about. Um, and two that like you have some frame of reference so that it doesn't change. I mean, obviously the price of coffee kind of changes day to day, but like I'm imagining like two, two people and it's like, you're going to get 50 cents for this per pound and you're going to get $4 per pound. It's like, wait, what? Like, why is this different? 
Mm-hmm. Does that kind of <laughs> somewhat <laughs> make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. And yeah, it's, yes. I mean, that's all of that is, is in there. And I think um, one point to make to, to explain sort of why a futures market exists. Again, I'm not, I'm, I'm a very slow to form opinions. So I have no opinions on what the right tool is or what the best tool is. And again, I think that's why it's so important to look case by case. And, you know, if you're buying hundred containers of coffee every month, maybe you do something different than if you buy one container of coffee a year. You know, I think that there's the same way that we say in specialty coffee, you know, there's a home for every coffee and a coffee for every home. Like that's the same with all these different tools too. I think there's, again, you can look at um, what the best use is for each tool and what the best tool is for each situation and and go from there. So this is just one in our basket of tools. But part of the reason that futures exchanges evolved was to limit the ability of one or a few people to manipulate the physical supply of something and therefore manipulate its price to sort of falsify a supply and demand by stockpiling something and then releasing it. So if you can imagine back, you know, in the 1800s or early 1800s, mid 1800s, coffee is still what they call break bulk, like coming in, you know, in the bellies of the ships. And there's a few, only, I mean, even today, there's still limited ports in the world and limited warehouses compared to the number of roasteries or farms. So if you own several of those in a region of the world, you could theoretically stockpile coffee to make it very scarce and drive up the price and then you be the first one to flood the market get the high price and then all of a sudden the price drops and anybody else who's trying to sell coffee can you know has that low price so that or the same thing could happen with weather events you could have these you know frosts or other extreme weather events come through that all of a sudden um eliminate a supply and have these sort of very brusque changes either literal or manipulative ones in in physical stocks, which would then create these like shocks in the price of something based on how much everyone's willing to pay for it and, and sort of what it's worth on the street, if you will. Mm-hmm. So part of what a futures exchange hoped to do was provide some stability, meaning like, okay, we don't know what the price is going to be three months from now, but if you trade this contract at a certain price, you can effectively guarantee yourself this price by trading this contract now and then paying whatever the price is once the, once it actually comes time that you are ready to buy and sell this physical coffee. And then if you net the two of them, it will even out to the price you want. So that's sort of the concept of using, and that's, that's, that's getting back to the hedging function. Um, but it gives people a tool. And again, because everyone can see the same price at the same time, it gives everyone theoretically the same ability to hedge. And I do think one of the things that I've noticed is that hedging and, and using the price protection tools or risk management tools available from the futures market is a lot more common in the middle and downstream parts of the chain, meaning connective businesses and roasters. And a lot of that has to do with things like financing. Um, and mm-hmm. so just the dollar amount that it costs to buy and sell these contracts, each contract corresponds to a container of coffee. So they're very expensive. 
Um, and there's also options against these contracts, which gets into a whole another level of derivative <laughs> products. To oh, gosh. Yeah. I was just about to go backwards a little bit um, and mm-hmm. ask you about the idea of hedging, because you've mentioned it a couple of times, but I'm not 100% sure I understand it. So can you go backwards and explain a little bit what hedging means? Yes. So again, this is just a very theoretical overview. I'm sure this is not what I do <laughs> in, in my day. So what I'm presenting is is sort of a conceptual way to understand the tool versus any tips on how to use it. Um, But what hedging allows you to do is essentially set the price that you'll pay for something or that you'll sell something at in the future. And, And the way that that happens is through trading futures contracts that correspond to your physical coffee contract. So the Basically, they're a way to make sure that the market doesn't move, the, the coffee C market doesn't move wildly outside of your favor. Because imagine that you agreed to a contract at a certain price, and then six months from now, when you want to deliver that coffee to whoever you sold it to, the, the market had dropped, and somebody says, I don't want to get it from you. I'm going to go get it where it's cheaper. Um, and so this allows people to pay. Basically, hedging allows you to have these physical, these contracts for physical coffee, where people are more likely to honor the price of those physical contracts if they also have a corresponding position in the futures market that when they net the two of them, when they like balance out the two of them, gives them a price that's favorable to them. Mm-hmm. So again, this is it's sort of tricky to explain without actually like getting into numbers and seeing it, which I don't quite want to go down <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, that path, but, but basically it's, it's a way of, of protecting yourself from the price, either moving way up or way down. Because again, we know that, you know, you probably know how much coffee you need as a roaster a couple of months before you need it, or the same thing as a producer, you know, as you're harvesting the coffee, you know about how much you have to sell. And in that meantime, you don't want either the price to drop way, you know, to bottom out on you if you're trying to sell something and you don't want it to skyrocket if you're trying to buy something. So you can effectively lock in the price of the moment by buying or selling a contract at that price. And then you do have to either buy or sell that contract back to close out your futures market position. And then at the same time, you're buying and selling the physical coffee. And the sum of those two transactions or the difference in those two transactions, the transaction that happens entirely in the futures market and then the transaction that happens entirely with the physical coffee, that those two, when you take the difference between them, will equal out to a price that you can calculate in advance, essentially. So it's basically a way, it's not just it's not just to protect against these huge movements going the opposite direction, but by doing these, by using the hedging, different hedging tools, it also just gives you the ability to forecast and to sort of know more or less what you're going to pay for coffee over a period of time versus just waiting to see what the market does or whether it goes up and down and whether worrying about someone defaulting on physical contracts that you have with them. Um, so does that help? <laughs> no, that did help a lot. And I think, um, I th- we like emailed about this a little bit um, and mentioned it kind of casually. I had a feeling mm-hmm. that this episode might be needing, like, might need to be broken up into two parts because we've like barely scratched the surface of like the outline we made. Um, mm-hmm. 
So with that in mind, um, I want to ask you one final question before we kind of transition into like the next part of this. Um, Mm -hmm. But something that I find really interesting kind of throughout all this talk about the C market as a tool and the way of thinking about this as a tool for a very specific purpose is kind of like the marketing and language around the C market price versus like direct trade or some sort of other relationship based like copy price system. Because I think for like so long, I, I know as a, as an educator um, in the past, like I've been taught that like we are meant to like promote this idea. Like we pay more than the C market price. Like we pay more than, Mm-hmm. you know what is on the futures exchange because it's like a dollar per this and I think it's interesting to like almost completely untether that from what what essentially we tell ourselves we do in specialty market um which is like oh we pay more but it's like these two things are obviously relational because it's coffee um but at the same time it's like they and, and you mentioned this earlier, like they don't have to be like the C market doesn't have to necessitate anything about what we actually pay for coffee. Um, so with that in mind, um, mm-hmm. I was wondering, like, how do you like, does that like ever bother you? Like, do you ever notice that same sort of rhetoric? Um, I mean, I think that's part of why I wanted to um, to accept your invitation to talk <laughs> here on Boss Barista um, was just to help clarify, because I think, again, this is like it's very abstract. I, I describe it, you know, as thinking like algebra makes sense, you know, it checks out. Logically, algebra is sound, but algebra is not common sense. You know, that logic wouldn't check out if someone didn't sit sit you down and force you to solve for X a hundred times until you got it. And so right. thinking about all this stuff like hedging in futures is kind of the same. Logically, it checks out. It does make sense. It does all work when you calculate it. It does I mean it's been around for you know, 100 and some 150 or whatever it is years since I think it was 1882 or something as the, you know, the, the coffee exchange opened. So clearly there's a logic to it that works for some people and, and among them, some exporters and some, you know, large producer groups, but it's not common sense. And so I think that's where it's tricky is that if you just, again, if you're a producer or if you're a roaster, or if you're just someone at the grocery store, these things don't make sense unless you've sat down and tried to piece the algebra of them together. And so I think that that's where, um, yeah, it just gets tricky because while well, some of the statements people might make about paying more for coffee than what's on the sea market might be true, I do think that sometimes they're not necessarily the most relevant attribute <laughs> of, to highlight about the process right. of making that coffee. Um, and I think sometimes it can create a little bit a little bit of noise where maybe there doesn't need to be noise um, because there's, again, there's ways to, all, all of it comes down to, you know, everyone decides at their own business and at their own individual level, how they come about agreements and how they want to honor them. Um, and so hedging is a tool that makes it easy to honor your agreements because you know that you sort of have insurance against that there won't be some price movement that somehow makes that contract that you want to honor because you're friends with somebody, if that becomes a financially dangerous decision, then what do you do? So it almost makes, um, you know, that's that's part of where, again, in exchange, one tool is that it lets you sort of see into the future or trade into the future um, on a futures exchange to, to sort of avoid some of those having to ask those questions of, oh, we have this contract at a certain amount, but now the market is doing something totally different. Do we honor this contract that we made or do we go with, you know, either the 
someone who's going to pay more because the market's more, or do we go with, you know, buying something cheaper because it's now available cheaper? So I think that, but again, depending on how you run your business, just whether the size of it, the type of coffee, all those different questions, the relationship you have with the people you're sourcing from, you can draft physical contracts at literally any price you want and you can honor them (laughs) no matter what that market is doing. So, uh, but again, I think it's kind of hard to explain how, you know, quote, not revolutionary, but how wild that might seem to just say we honored our fixed price contract that was for a very high number, even though we could buy coffee very cheaply over here. You know, that's that's sort of a harder, like one liner to pitch, I guess. Um, so, so yeah, and I think it's also um, sometimes I'm also curious about how much those claims resonate with consumers or resonate with people who drink coffee. I think, um, yeah, I think that's another, another piece of this is that not only, um, only, not only is the aspect of futures market and price discovery, not necessarily common knowledge to every single person who works in the coffee industry. It's not necessarily common knowledge to every single person who's buying coffee. So that's where I just, I always want to, you know, make sure that, you know, in the writing and everything I do, I always want to make sure, you know, I know what I'm talking about before I talk about it. And so that's something I think is is tricky with price, because again, it's something everybody interacts with every day at their companies. You know, you know how much, you know, you have to go through the process of either buying coffee or pricing your retail bags or something. And, you know, consumers see the price of coffee at the grocery store. They see the price of a latte at a certain cafe. So some it's something we all interact with daily. So it feels very familiar on a lot of levels. But again, there's all of these processes sort of in the middle that come from these fairly sophisticated and very abstract, but also very logical (laughs) tools like futures trading. And that also informs everything, you know, the cost of other normal household goods that include basic grains, or even there's contracts for, for live hogs, there's contracts for metals, there's contracts for orange juice concentrate. I mean, this is like, this is sort of has a lot to do with how the grocery trade evolves and everything too. So um, yeah, it's sort of kind of hard. It's, I think a little bit tricky to single coffee out in that way when, when it's bound with all these other, other systems. I have a lot more questions to ask you. That was great. I loved it. And I have a lot more questions to ask you, which will come up in the second half of this interview. That was Rachel Northrup, author of the book, When Coffee Speaks. As I mentioned earlier, this is part one of our two-part episode with Rachel. Part two is available right now. Go ahead, take a listen. And if you want to check out a transcript of this episode and of part two, go to bossbarista.substack.com. I'm just looking for a better day. Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. 
We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash boss barista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.